into another edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Tettle, and today myself and the rest of the crew will be wrapping up our discussion of the 2023 season for the Sun Devils under first-year head coach Kenny Dillingham. The team finished 3-9 and with its worst back-to-back season since World War II. But before we get into all of that, there's some breaking news today as we're recording on on Wednesday morning, and that includes Bo Baldwin, offensive coordinator, not returning for ASU next season. And tight end Jalen Conyers also announced he has entered the transfer portal. Uh, So right away, let's go over to Chris Cartman uh, with some more information around these latest updates. Yeah, so one one quick point there is that the transfer portal actually opens on Monday. So he's announced that he's going to be entering the the portal. Um, Bo Baldwin, uh, not surprised. I don't think anybody's going to be surprised by this. He was replaced as ASU's play caller after uh, Fresno State, Sun Devils were uh, shut out for the first time since 1988. Kenny Dillingham took over the play calling duties there. I think the writing was kind of on the wall. Really, at that point, Dillingham uh, remained the play caller throughout the entire Pac-12 schedule. Um, Baldwin just never really worked out. Uh, I, I think pretty clearly that was a mistake that was made by Dillingham. Uh, to to make him the offensive coordinator. He had been the head coach at Cal Poly. Previously had a lot of success as a head coach in an offensive mind, innovator at Eastern Washington. But that really never materialized. And there was lots of uh, uh, injuries, offensive line injuries, quarterback injuries, things that were problematic. It's not like Dillingham uh, made dramatic improvements with the offense whatsoever um, you know, when he took it over. Uh, there is a a search that's ongoing. Um, people in the coaching community have told me that Dillingham is reaching out to several people working on trying to do some reporting on on who uh, targets maybe candidates for this job. And that's something that um, we'll be developing here in the coming hours and days, certainly as we're recording this. It's just after uh, the news that uh, Baldwin would not return. So we'll see what happens there. And then Conyers, nobody can really be too surprised by this, even though he made some strong comments after the Territorial Cup game that people probably interpreted to mean um, that he was bought, still bought into what they were doing here. The, the, the truth of the matter is that he went through a challenging year where um, coaches um, made a decision to not start him at one point, he didn't even really play a lot in one of the games. Um, and there, then Dillingham um, acknowledged that Conyers went through some stuff. And Conyers himself even talked towards the end of the season about things that he's learned and in, in, uh, in college and how, you know, it's important to be kind of a well-rounded tight end instead of just a, pa- a pass catcher, pardon me. And so – the other part of this I think is important to to make clear is there's there's NIL considerations now that weren't really part of the equation just a couple of years ago. Conyers and and uh, Elijah Badger were ASU's two highest paid players at NIL on the roster, and we know that that NIL is underfunded at ASU relative to a lot of other schools around the country that ASU is competing with. And so there has to be questions about, is it a smart allocation of resources to put maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars or so toward Jalen Conyers, given the 
the overall needs of this particular team. You have uh, a need for three or four offensive line transfers. 24-7 said that offensive line is going to be the hardest position at which to acquire the better talent on the market. So when you have Bryce Pierre, who uh, didn't look like he was too much of a step down from Conyers, if at all, this season, and then you have Ryan Morgan returning and Jaden Fortier, one of the uh, top uh, uh, commitments on ASU's 2024 class board, you have to make some some considerations. And so it, when I when I factor all that in, I think that it might actually be better served for ASU to recapture that money that Conyers um, a Conyers departure would 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 put back on the table and reallocate that given the the overall constraints of what ASU's NIL situation is. And, and we're going to talk a lot more about the NIL situation in a member podcast that uh, will follow next week. Yeah, I want to remind everybody, Sun Devil Source has a transfer tracker, and there's a 30-day period opening on December 4th, as Chris, Chris mentioned earlier, where players uh, are going to be able to actually enter the transfer portal officially. Uh, Chris, going back to you really quick, what's your gauge on how many student athletes might leave here at ASU and what coach Kenny Dillingham and the rest of the staff in Tempe is looking to acquire out of the transfer portal? Yeah, it just goes back to the, the point that I made previously, which is um, college football has changed so drastically within, within a, a period of several years. I can remember not even a decade ago, saying that a normal sort of average amount of attrition from a roster scholarship roster would have been something like six to eight spots. Right. And now we're in a world where um, most teams are probably losing twice that many scholarship guys in a year or, or, or thereabouts. So um, I don't expect as much, nearly as much loss from the roster this year as last year, which was, quite something to behold when you had a new coach coming in, taking over and trying to put his own stamp on the program from a personnel standpoint. We've talked a lot about this in the past, but ASU added 50 plus uh, new scholarship players last year by far record, almost doubling the record and 30 uh, division one transfers, which more than doubled the prior record. This won't be anything like that, but it will still be um, a lot more uh, movement than has typically been the case like historically over the years. So what that exactly looks like from a number standpoint, it's kind of hard to say there, you know, there might be 10 could be a little bit less, could be more than that, perhaps a little bit. Um, some of these guys though, will be players that ASU frankly would per would prefer to have the, the scholarship back. You have some veteran players on your team, <clears throat> pardon me, that can transfer and um, it, or graduate and move on, and they weren't playing at ASU. They, you had fourth or fifth year players in some cases who didn't play a lot at ASU that are on scholarship. And you'd like to be able to claw back those scholarships by having those guys grad transfer or decide to move on with their career. So, you know, I think there will be uh, a decent amount departing, but in in most cases not all but in most cases it really won't be quote unquote losses when projecting against the average 
incoming transfer that ASU will probably get. And in many cases, it'll probably be an, a, a boost from a talent overall standpoint. And I do think that the number of transfers that ASU will bring in will probably be about half as many as last year when they had 30. So 15-ish could go either way on that. And I think somewhat balanced between offense and defense, maybe a few more on offense. Certainly the biggest need position by far is offensive line. You're going to see ASU probably add three or four division one offensive line transfers, but then everywhere else, it's sort of like dotting the, you know, dotting the roster. It's like one here, one here kind of in most places. So, and I do expect by the way, something else we'll talk a lot more in the future, but I do expect that Kane Dillingham is going to not, uh, he's not going to um, refuse to take a look at the quarterback position. Like he's going to explore even quarterback transfers. Yes. Jane Rashad is super talented, young freshman, but do you want to put all your eggs in the Rashada basket when uh, you know, pretty clearly that things didn't work out at the position this season and, and you didn't get good enough play from the other guys on your roster that drew pine, Trenton Borgay, Jacob Conover thing, you had eight eight passing touchdowns on the season, half of which were by Rashada. So, so you know, keep an eye on on the quarterback position. What what is Rashada going to do? Don't know yet. What is what will happen with uh, other quarterbacks? We're going to find out. Yeah, folks, we'll dive into recruiting a lot more heavily in some premium podcasts to follow as well. The Sun Devils have a big official visit weekend coming with a four star running back and an offensive lineman set to visit. So make sure to stay alerted to that. But with all that said, let's go ahead and transition uh, to our review of ASU's performance in the Territorial Cup. Before that, let's go ahead and welcome in the other members of the podcast. We've got Jake Seymour on with us today. Jake, how are you doing? Very good, Ethan. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Happy to be here. Noah Furtado also on the pod with us. Noah, how are you? Good, man. It's good to be back on the pod with the team. Absolutely. Guys, we weren't really anywhere in the ballpark close with our projections of the territorial cup. Uh, so let's go ahead and go around and get our thoughts on, on uh, how that transpired and what you guys made of the last couple games of the season for the sun devils is it was a, a tough finish to say the least. Jake, let's go ahead and start with you. Yeah. I mean, you sum it up best there. It was an incredibly tough start uh, for the, for ASU. They, the thing with this team is that, you know, this game itself was just like Oregon. It was over in the first half and, you know, to end your season on two games that really there was no sense of competing past the first quarter, first half. Um, it's really kind of a sour point to put onto a season that was already kind of a disappointing season and, you know, kind of finished the the worst back-to-back, uh, you know, two seasons ASU's had since World War II. So, uh, Fafita absolutely, you know, picked them apart in the secondary. Uh, I think Arizona did a really good job of predicting which coverages ASU was going to be in with their initial script. And then from that point on, they got on the right footing and was able to continue to move the football down the field. Um, we saw ASU get into some uh, on defensively forced some third and long uh, situations. But again, like I said, Arizona did a really good job of predicting the coverages in, in the secondary. Um, and then you combine that with the fact that there wasn't a lot of pressure up front and it made for a really easy time for Arizona to convert on some of those third downs. And then on top of that, get the football down the field into scoring range um, and once they got there, uh, outside of that first drive in the first half, they scored a touchdown on every single uh, possession they had, I, I believe. So really kind of a, a disappointing game, disappointing way to end the season. I think if there's maybe like 
a positive if anybody wants to hear a positive from that game. At least ASU came back and scored in the second half and they didn't just kind of stop. They they came back, had a little bit of momentum for themselves, ended up scoring a few more touchdowns. But um, other than that, like I said, kind of a disappointing way to end a disappointing season. Yeah, Chris and I talked about that in the post-game show uh, following the Territorial Cup, just about at least having the fight. If there was a positive, that was probably one of them. But not easy to have a lot of juice left in the tank when your team's trailing 38-7 in a big-time rivalry matchup like that going into the half. So uh, not easy at all to come back in that second half. But they were able to uh, muster something, so a slight positive. Uh, Noah, what do you have? For what it's worth, I did have Arizona covering. Um, <laughs> uh, I think one of the things that stood out um, in that game as well, so basically the end of their season where they played Oregon, Arizona, both back-to-back losses, uh, blowout losses, those two teams seem to be the most balanced offensively than any team that ASU faced uh, prior to that. Um, you know, when ASU played Washington, they're able to, you know, face Michael Penix Jr., but in a sort of one-dimensional context, Washington airs the ball out, doesn't have really much of a run game in that situation. They were able to to hone in on some things um in their scheme to to match up. Oregon uh was basically elite in all facets. We didn't really expect much. Uh, from that from that game, they they put up close to fifty points. Arizona, while the you know the final stats team wise didn't re- necessarily reflect it. Uh, Michael Wiley averaged about five point five yards per carry. He was their starting back to start to see uh, to open the season. Uh, he ran in a couple of touchdowns, uh, some longer runs that he just broke off. Uh, didn't look good uh, from ASU standpoint, and and so I feel like. You know, Fafita, he's a good quarterback, definitely, uh, and he had a he had a career day. Um, but when you're looking at it from an overall standpoint, ASU, uh, I think they struggled to to understand uh, what to take away, maybe in in some of these matchups. Because uh, prior to that, in addition to Washington, they play Washington State, airs the ball out. Colorado does the same thing. USC, while they could run the ball more, they're also a pass heavy team under Lincoln Riley. So uh, there's a lot of things that I think um, they were able to execute against those kinds of offenses that, uh, you know, weren't as easily done uh, against Oregon and and Arizona, obviously. Uh, offensively, I, I'm kind of on the same page with you guys where you give up so many points to start off. I mean, if you scored the first touchdown, but then you give up seven touchdowns after that, the next seven, it's 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 pretty difficult to to muster, you know, the the necessary uh, resolve to to actually, you know, stay focused uh, play by play because you sort of understand that the game is over at that point. And, and uh, to, to really stay in it, um, especially on the on the last <laughs> on the last game of a three and what is going to be a three and nine season. It's, uh, you know, it's not an easy task. And I think they got to a point where, um, you know, it, it's easy to to think about what you don't have offensive line wise. They struggled there all season. Injuries were a big problem. Jaden Rashada obviously comes back, but amid 
uh, his own injury issues for eight or nine weeks into a rivalry game that, uh, you know, it's, it's not necessarily fair to expect him to be, to be really sharp. And obviously he throws a couple of interceptions. So, you know, there's a lot of factors that I think ran against them in that matchup. And uh, obviously Arizona is, is hitting a very high stride right now, you know, with where the program's at being ranked in top AP top 25 bowl eligible for the first time since 2017, a lot of things going for them. And they're in that, uh, you know, they've been moving in the right direction for for a couple of seasons now under Jed Fish, and Dillingham is just getting started with that process. So that's how I see it. Let's go over to Chris for your thoughts on uh, the last couple games for ASU. Yeah, it was a very uh, disappointing conclusion to the season uh, for the team, and really, um you have to zero in on just like stinkers of a of a first half in both of those games. The, the ASU's defense overall for the first season had had a pretty good year, but then it just ended so poorly in those two games that it, it just almost sort of wipes away the, the memory of that overall. Um, and so I, I hate to say this, uh, it's not, you know, something that people probably want to hear that much, but when, when you know that your offense is super limited as ASU is, and then you give up a, a few scores in the first, in the, in, the, in the first quarter, first part of a game to a team that's good, like Oregon or Arizona, everybody on your own team kind of already knows, okay, this game's over. We don't have an offense that's going to be able to score 30 something points and come from behind to to beat these caliber of teams and so you could say all the things that you want to but we're talking about young young guys 18 to 23 or whatever year old guys and that's a very demoralizing reality to face when that is your situation and it's not we are not at the point of observing a program that has matured and and been through the fire for some years and 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 been steeled against these sorts of things and understanding how to respond to them like they ASU's not there yet right and and that is extremely apparent and these games were very much examples of that i i i do think that it was a little bit uh of a concern that Arizona picked ASU apart so easily uh, with with ASU's coverages defensively. Like, asked Kenny Dillingham after the game about that. He said, "When well, you don't have a pass rush that's going to get there with four, it makes things really difficult." Okay, fine, but ASU played some some more conservative zone coverages in that first half, and you had Arizona's two best wide receivers running open in some flood concepts where they got a bunch of numbers on one side of the field and a guy was running open underneath some, some, uh, some, the wash of some other routes. And so um, they need to just sort of regroup and try to figure out, you know, what, what they have to do. But um, that put a very sour stain, uh, I would say on uh, the overall um season that the defense had and then ASU's offense just 
continues continued to be really bad. They played Rashada. The whole thing happened where Trent Borgay was going to start because Rashada missed a team meeting on Friday or not missed. Pardon me. was late to a team meeting on Friday. And then um, Borgay got, got sick in pregame. And then he told the coaches and then the coaches told the Jalen Conyers and the rest of the team, they were going to run the Hellcat, which is Conyers getting the direct snaps. And that was just another, that was like the, the cherry on top of just a crazy season in terms of, injury and illnesses and other things sort of impacting your team and then setting you on a challenging course. But Rashada, um, as talented as he is, you can't take nine games off and then be ready to come back and, and, and handle that sort of a situation. And he was under duress quite a bit. And then there were some drops that happened on the field um, and other guys that just didn't really uh allow ASU to to make the best of a, of a difficult situation and so now you regroup and you, and, and you move on yeah guys looking at the season overall there were a slew of injuries across the board as we've already mentioned time and time again offensively not really a clear-cut quarterback either due to a number of reasons including injury uh, and the offense struggled as well as we talked about you know especially in that 29 nothing loss to Fresno State um just overall thoughts on how you guys are evaluating Kenny Dillingham's first season as a head coach here at Arizona State. Let's go ahead and start with Jake. I think Dillingham said it best um, in his post-game press conference. It, they kind of got worse almost as as season progressed, and that was because of the injuries. And it's really hard to continue to develop players when in practices Dillingham can't have his, you know, strong on strong reps with his first team defense and offense going against each other and getting those players the necessary reps against one another. And I just think it's kind of funny when you look at the the back half of the season compared to the first half, ASU was in a lot of really close games in the first, in the first half of the season, like Oklahoma state, they, um you know, were within one, one possession uh, in the fourth quarter there, they had chances to, to, uh, to come back in it and they failed to do so. Uh, obviously the Fresno state loss, which is kind of a blowout. And then, you jumped to Cal, and that was only a three-point loss. They were once again in that, and they were driving uh, in the fourth quarter, and they turned it over on downs, weren't able to convert and get the win in Berkeley. And they come home to Colorado, and if you know they had a miscommunication in the secondary to end the game, it was tied at 24. If they don't have that miscommunication and Torrance um, you know, is in the correct coverage, then maybe Colorado doesn't get the field goal off, and then you're in overtime at home. And then they had the bye week, and they come up with the bye week and hold Washington without an offensive touchdown. And anytime I feel like you hold a team without an offensive touchdown, like nine out of ten times you're gonna win that win that game. And maybe for ASU, they're not gonna hold a team like Washington. Like definitely not nine out of ten times it's gonna happen. But the point is, you know, to end that game, um, they had a Trent Borgay's a pick six. The ball was thrown, you know, slightly behind Stovall, which resulted in the pick six, and then went the other way. So all those little little things kind of simulate this the season is that this team just didn't know how to win. They were trying to learn how to do that. Um, and that's a big step for any football program to take. And once you take that step, you start seeing the I feel like the wins start to pile up when you take that step. And you know, that's gonna be something that they had to work for this offseason. So how do you learn to win and next season, you know, maybe building toward that and, and finding those ways and those methods to come out on top in some of those close games. Let's go over to Noah. I think it's pretty surprising overall that ASU won three games given the circumstances with all of the injuries. I mean, it was a pretty un unprecedented situation. 
in which they had to sort of stick and glue guys uh, in different positions up front. Like you, you saw almost every practice, different combinations. It was, it was quite something to keep up with, you know, for even the depth chart on our practice report, <laughs> making sure we had, um, had known where every player was, was repping at uh, at any given point in, in the observed periods. So, you know, we had projected them maybe to be around four or five wins before the season. They end up with three uh, amid things that were unforeseen. Obviously, we, we wouldn't expect them to lose more than half of their their offensive line, uh, viable offensive linemen. A lot of their starters missed games as well up there. And then obviously with the quarterback situation. So um, I think it was a good point that Jake made. ASU playing in a lot of close games. I mean, the Cal game could have gone either way. Uh, probably should have won that game, to be honest. Uh, punting was a big issue. Field position, if you, if you remember, uh, Josh uh, Carlson didn't have a great game. Um, did he have an injury? Did he not? I don't know. Came out afterward that he might have been working through something. But that's something that was, you know, the margins were very thin. And uh, ASU could have very easily pulled that out on the road. Uh, Colorado going into overtime with less than a minute left. And then, you know, you give up a big play after, you know, Roe Torrance does after an otherwise good game, good performance. Uh, one play really loses you that one at the end of the game. Uh, you're down by a touchdown entering the fourth uh, against USC. I mean, at that time when USC is, you know, as highly touted as they were ranked in the top five, top 10, that, that was a good position to be in. Um, wasn't expected to pull it out necessarily, but they were competitive, right? And then, um, and obviously they they had those instances where they flashed uh, potential, right? And even in those situations, uh, you see what we've what we've been talking about for a while now is, um, you know, the the lack of of an established sort of culture to to be prepared uh, at those times and, and to perform and and execute. So. You know, there's a lot of things that, you know, roster wise are, is going to be what we're focusing on here in the next month or so, next next several months, really. Um, but whatever players come in, Billingham made it a point that uh, those who remain, right, uh, it's going to be their job to try and strike some sense of continuity among the newcomers. And I think that's a really important note because in the era of, transfer portal uh you know and and the impact that that's had on college football when you're bringing in new players every season an unprecedented number of them than would otherwise be the case five years ago it's um it's a new challenge i think uh you know for a coach in dillingham's position uh trying to build back a program from scratch culturally right with with all of that turnover it's, it's not an easy thing uh, it is positive that it's not going to be as many as it was his first season, and therefore he has some foundational ground to end on with those players who were with him for at least one season now. Uh, but that's definitely something that um, uh, I it's clear he's thinking about as, as something that um, is going to be you know one to monitor as uh, as these new players come in and, and are welcomed into the program. Let's go ahead and go over to Chris. Yeah, so look, I predicted before the season ASU was going to win six games. 
Um, that was on the higher end of what I sort of thought to be the range, but I, I did not expect, of course, anywhere near as many serious injuries, um, early on to their offense. I think that really derailed their, their season, um, almost before it even had started, really you're Fresno state, you're playing your four string quarterback. And then really throughout the rest of the season, you didn't have Drew Pine or or Rashada for the vast majority. Trenton Borgay's got a gimpy ankle that he's playing through. Your quarterback play was was overall quite poor on the year. And behind an offensive line that was as injured as any season that I've covered at ASU. So that absolutely um, um, led to a loss or two more than I think would have had, would have been the case. Um, if not for those things, maybe ASU wouldn't have won six games. If everybody was healthy, maybe it would have been four or five games, but it would have been more. And, um, you know, I also look at their punting problems, especially early in the year that Josh Carlson had, and he was apparently playing with the stress reaction of his foot or whatever. But I look at that and I say, well, ASU probably would have beaten Cal even just with a better punter. I think the punter alone differential between Cal's punter who won Pac-12 special teams player of the week that 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 week and ASU's punter was was significant. And then, you know, you get better quarterback play, maybe you beat Washington, which sounds crazy to say, but you had, you know, Borgay through an interception pick six at the most pivotal juncture of the entire game um, after an incredible defensive performance. So, and of course, ASU played very, really poorly, uh, even uh, in other games on, on the offensive side of the ball in games that were, you know, relatively close this season. Um, you know, ASU lost to Colorado 27-24. You know, what happens if, if you know, what happens in that game? So, yeah, the, the, this was... You know, it, it, when you when people look at back at this in another year or two, this adversity that happened this year and all the challenges and struggles are to me the 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 fire that you get forged in for the future. I think that's kind of like the important takeaway that I would have from this moving forward is you're made better by the more that you go through if you have the fortitude to 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 rise to the occasion of all of that right and so i just feel like uh even though it it was terrible for them to experience uh, as they went through it a lot of the younger players in particular on asu's roster will benefit really greatly from having gone through this experience and also the the dillingham he had to make course corrections very significant course corrections as the season was unfolding Right, he 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 moved away from the things that he wanted to do offensively. They went into the cut splits and the exit motions, and I sort of predicted early on that's kind of what they probably needed to do, but it, it was really against what he want, prefers to do philosophically. And then they went into the swinging gate and the and the and the uh, the the this the wild scan and that and the Hellcat formation. So I just think from a creativity standpoint and a thinking about your how do you best utilize your personnel standpoint. There were also benefits that uh, were accrued through this season that they can take moving into next year. And so 
and and Brian Ward is going to learn. And so there's a lot of things that I think are, um, you know, they're, they're, uh, you know, would you have preferred to have had a better season if you're ASU? Of course, of course, but going through this probably makes you better in the long run. I would say. What surprised you guys most? We just talked about some, some of the stuff right there, the, the you know, adaptability of coach Dillingham offensively dialing up some different uh, schemes and formations, uh, lots of injuries more than Chris has ever seen in his entire career covering ASU, I think is, as he mentioned earlier, Jake, let's go to you first, just on biggest surprises of the season. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that kind of surprised me was just like, obviously the injuries, but the way that there were players have stepped up and kind of filled those holes when it was needed. Um, a guy that comes to mind is Sean Na'a on the offensive line. Um, true freshman making his starts. Uh, making his collegiate debuts um, kind of on a whim, kind of just getting thrown out there, especially against Utah, too. Spent the entire week practicing at left guard um, because Isaiah Glasser came back, was gonna was slated to play left tackle. Um, he decided to enter the portal, and Nah was asked as a true freshman on the plane going to Salt Lake City, hey, can you play left tackle? And he did it, and he played pretty well there. So I think just – he's only one example. There were other players that stepped up <clears throat> to fill in for some of those injuries. Um, and, you know, he's kind of the one that kind of comes to mind. And I think the other thing, too, that kind of surprises me is that in a season where you're three and nine, it's the back second season that you, you're going to be three and nine. ASU still had its players buy into the system and what Dillingham was preaching. And what you kind of saw was their players that continuously spoke about, you know, doing their 111th and doing everything that need, needed to set the foundation. And it kind of seemed like that didn't necessarily waver throughout the season, especially in the senior class, uh, which, you know, Obviously, we're, we're hoping for a better senior year to go out on. Um, but that's really important for Dillingham, uh, you know, in year two is that that his foundation in year one was set and it's something that he can build upon for year two and year three and down the road when he's um, still at ASU. Noah, what was jumping out to you this season? Well, let's keep in mind that it wasn't all flowers and rainbows from the cultural standpoint. I think, obviously, they, they had that stint where the offense was lagging behind the defense in terms of buy-in amid all the injuries. You have the bus situation, clean up the bus after the after the Washington game, right? Uh, you lose 15-7, don't clean up the bus. Dillingham calls you out for it. Um, so, you know, there, there are things that they had to work through. And I think actually those were, those were expected. Um, I, you know, I think it's admirable to have seen the response uh, pr pretty noticeable changes by um, by the offense, especially sort of uh, fueled by by the offensive leaders. Um, you know, Jalen Conyers comes out and sort of acknowledges uh, the need to to change course or to em further emphasize certain things. Joey Ramos was sort of uh, a rock on that side of the ball when it came to, you know, being someone that uh, players could look up to. Um, but, but again, it, it took some time for, for everyone to really get on the same page there. Um, so outside of that, uh, I, I think, you know, that was a positive, um, for them to, to go through that, uh, it wasn't going to be good right from the jump that that's to be expected. Um, but is there anything more surprising really than the injuries that, Beyond what can be controlled, 
that has to be something that um, that is pinpointed, obviously, because it limited what they were able to do in a lot of ways. Uh, if Jaden Rashada was the quarterback uh, for most, if, uh, if not all of the games, uh, even with some of the offensive line challenges, it gives you opportunities to, you know, it gives you room to work with the offense uh, differently as opposed to throwing your running back at quarterback or your tight end at quarterback. You know what I'm saying? So th those sorts of things, um, while they were creative and sort of tried to squeeze out what, what could be had from the offensive standpoint, uh, it wasn't going to be as much as if Jaden Rashada was available there and working with what his strengths uh, could could allow for the offensive offense to do even with some offensive line injuries so you know this that that to me I think just stands out uh, it's the obvious answer but I don't think there's anything that really tops that um, you don't go into a season expecting to lose you know a number of starters on both sides of the ball for multiple games so uh, I think in a lot of ways that uh, while, while ASU has things to learn from this season, that that aspect of it is a wash, really, moving forward. Um, it, it wasn't really something where you could have changed some things. Dillingham specifically addressed it's not a training issue, right? Joe Connolly has been been the strength and conditioning coach for a long time. Uh, a lot of things that work. And, and you know, there's just sort of freak accidents uh, or things that were, you know, bad luck. I don't know what you want to call it, <laughs> but, but leave it up to chance. And it didn't really go their way in that regard this season. Um, can't really expect that to happen in future seasons. If it doesn't, they're moving in the right direction. Things are, things are on the up. So. Yeah. With the amount of injuries, it felt like there was like a curse or a hex put on the sun devils this year. No, it was just unbelievable. Like you mentioned, <clears throat> let's go ahead and go over to Chris uh, for his biggest surprises on the season. Yeah, you know, other than the injuries, which we've now talked about, we've worn out. But the um, sort of crazy thing to me was that the guys that ASU brought back who were expected to be the leaders of the team, especially on offense, didn't really become the leaders of the team the way that I think people expected or or wanted or hoped. And Dillingham spent the whole first part of the year, first part of the season, August, September into October, talking about the absence of offensive leadership and how the offense wasn't matching the defense in this way with the leaders. We saw very obviously that the uh, on defense, you had Trey Brown, Deshaun Mallory, right? Those guys were leaders. You had guys in the secondary who were leaders. And that, I don't think, was matched on the offensive side. Very clearly, it was Jalen Conyers went through a process. It was Elijah Badger being talked about going through a process that you know ultimately led to him taking the podium and reflecting on his season at UCLA. It was... Who's the quarterback leader stepping up? It, it was kind of like, oh, okay, Joey Ramos is a leader on the on the offensive line. Well, who else is who else is is rising to be a leader? 
And so I, I just think that when you're trying to set a culture and then the guys that you worked hard to try to retain from your roster and are getting the most NIL money when they aren't bringing, lifting everybody up or, or, or getting behind them and pushing them forward to the degree that you kind of need, that's actually a problem. And that was kind of surprising. I thought so. Um, you know, there, there were other things. This was, this was a wild year, man. This was, you look back and you think about it. Golly. I mean, we talked, we're talking about worst losses since the forties and, and getting, getting given up, you know, uh, getting shut out, which is almost never happens. And, and uh, historically bad first halves in back-to-back weeks at home. And I mean, there was just so much, but again, I just circle back and underline the point. I think that for having gone through this, it's going to be, a, it's going to be rocket fuel for these guys building into the off season and next year and beyond. Yeah. And going from there, where does the team go from here? Like you said, I mean, uh, plenty of rocket fuel to, to inject in the team there to, to uh, carry them into next season and through the off season, certainly some fire and some grit. And a lot of these guys, I'm sure with the, the three and nine finishes we mentioned uh, back-to-back seasons, just some of the worst in the program's history. Uh, so, Jake, get your thoughts here first on just where ASU needs to go from here. Well, Dillingham said it was rock bottom post-game after Arizona, so I guess it's only up from here, right? Um, I think it's it's kind of hard to say what's going to happen with ASU's offseason because of the transfer portal and kind of the uh, uncertainty that kind of comes with that because, you know, you don't know – who's going to enter the portal, who's going to stay, who's going to enter and then come back. Like you, It's kind of a crapshoot. And you know, you have your ideas about who's going to enter and who's going to leave. Um, but, of course, you know, it, it kind of comes down to the individual player and individual stories kind of taking place and developing as the offseason goes on. So I think currently for ASU, you're prob- I think they probably need like two to three offensive linemen from the portal because when you look at their offensive line, they really struggled in that aspect, especially when the guys started going down with injuries, kind of retaining um, the, that ability to have guys come in for the depth and support that uh, that unit when they really needed it. Uh, and then from there, too, I mean, Chris highlighted the quarterback play. Obviously, you know, if you're ASU, you're hoping Rashada comes back for a sophomore year, but you're going to have to have some depth there as well, given just how uh, the other three uh, quarterbacks kind of played out and their kind of uh, struggles throughout the season. Um, and, you know, defensively, too, you're losing a guy like Deshaun Mallory, who is, I think, probably one of the best defensive players of the season that ASU had this year um, and certainly was, you know, up there, um, if not the, the best defensive player they had. So you got to replace a guy like that. So there's a lot of er- there's some areas of need for ASU this year, and it's going to be interesting to see how the transfer portal um, develops and how they're able to maybe answer some of those questions throughout the offseason. Yeah, Travion Brown, another guy who's leaving, and he was – another key leader in that group uh, coming over from Washington state with uh, defensive coordinator, Brian Ward. Uh, let's go over to Noah. Where does the NIL go from here? I think that is the biggest question with, uh, with where the program can be taken under Dillingham. Um, he said it uh, in the preseason. I think it was at camp Tonazona. I don't remember the exact quote, but something along the lines of you don't have a program without NIL, right? And um, given how far behind ASU really is in that space, um, it leaves a lot to be desired, I think, with what you can really expect from ASU before that starts to get rolling. 
um, Ray Anderson's resignation obviously was a uh, was a tipping point to get additional support. To what extent, we're not exactly sure. We know they doubled uh, monthly monthly members, uh, but even then, there's just so much ground to make up after you really gave other programs a head start, right? Ray Anderson, Michael Crow, um, you're sort of hesitant for, for whatever reason. Um, we reported that it was because of, you know, not wanting to, from a perception standpoint, to do too much to, you know, amid the NCAA investigation. But, but now you have almost years to, to make up ground on on the nil situation and to keep players to attract players uh to the program you have to have that as, as good of a program as as dillingham might be able to build here from a cultural standpoint right um from from year to year he is bound by the personnel that he can have at his disposal and and the the fuel is NIL more than anything else. That is the the bottom line, right? So I think to to kind of keep tabs on where that goes will be an indicator of of what to expect from ASU on the field, really. Yeah, I mean, a lot of schools across the country are implementing NIL, you know, collectives, and they're doing a lot of different and interesting, unique things with their student-athletes. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, like you said, maybe what avenues Sun Angel Collective decides to take if, if there's maybe another uh, route to more donations rather than the monthly donation uh, payment. So we'll have to see uh, how that kind of continues to develop over the course of the offseason. Let's go ahead and go over to Chris. You guys are touching on some really important stuff there. Um, and, and absolutely, as I said earlier, we just college football and it's changed so much in the last few years and the reality is ASU is far behind in NIL you had uh Sun Angel Collective's Brittany Willen on the podcast to sort of talk about their efforts there um the we've done reporting um that uh discussed where ASU is at relative to its peers in the ahead of the big 12 move and it's very far behind we uh i i've i've you know basically been told by many people that you need probably three million to four million dollars in terms of an annual spend on your football roster in nil and asu uh had a football roster that was far below one million dollars this year in in its in its spend so you're not you're not going to be able to overcome the talent gap by just out evaluating and out developing everybody at ASU in the, the PAC 12 or the big 12 Conyers. That's like, you almost have to let him go because he's going to take up too much of a chunk of your NIL relative to what you need and where you have to focus your, your, your efforts from an allocation standpoint on your roster, which is quarterback pass rushers, uh, your edge protection, and your corners and receivers. That's that's where you need it. So it's a difficult and precarious situation. I wrote about it a lot. 
actually at Sun Devil Source put up a long post yesterday that discussed a lot of these things. I encourage people to read it and understand like what a lot of the challenges are moving forward. What do you have to do with your roster? Well, you need to inject more, more competition at the quarterback position, even if that led potentially to Rashad deciding to go elsewhere. Rashada, Rashada would take up a big chunk of NIL. It seems like, so you have to, you have to infuse your, your quarterback position. You need Cameron Scadaboo to Carlos Brooks. They're fine. ASU didn't have enough of an athletic explosiveness component to pair with them. So you need to make sure that that gets resolved, whether that is confidence in Kyson Brown or Tevin White, or whether that's a four-star running back who's visiting this weekend that we're going to be talking about. Uh, You need offensive linemen, a bunch of them, right? And then you might need a tight end now. Probably a big blocking physical presence of a tight end would have been really great to have on this team this year. They didn't have it. Then you go on defense and you say, okay, well, who do you have to replace? Deshaun Mallory is maybe your best player, defensive tackle. You need a new defensive tackle. Trey Brown, you're one of your best linebackers, maybe your best linebacker, one of your top team leaders. You need another Trey Brown. And then you go and you say, oh, and you're also losing Real Torrance and D Ford. Guess what? Even though you have some good young players in the pipeline, like a Keith Abney, as a freshman, you need somebody else who can play corner, who's a veteran experienced guy. So these are the bare minimums that you have to have. Uh, and then probably also you supplement with some pieces here and there. It's difficult to do when all the guys that you probably would want in the transfer portal are going to be able to get more money elsewhere. You're going to have to be able to out-evaluate people on some backups who haven't played that much at the Power 5 level. That's how ASU got Prince Dorba, Clayton Smith, right? Even Mallory, underutilized guys that maybe don't have a bunch of NIL value. And then you're going to have to go find starters maybe at the FCS level, like a Cameron Scadaboo, Shamari Simmons, D Ford, right? Or possibly some group of five starters that are not on the higher end of the spectrum in terms of their, how much in demand that they are. Yeah, absolutely. Well said, Chris. Uh, some of the guys, Coach Kenny Dillingham already brought in, as you mentioned, guys like Cam Scadaboo, Shamari Simmons have been uh, some of the best performers on the team throughout the season. Uh, so we'll have to see uh, who's he, who he's able to evaluate this offseason and see if anybody comes in next year and is catching the attention of a lot of the Sun Devil fans in the stands. But let's go ahead and transition into our final Pick the Pack segment of uh, the podcast season here for football, at least, is we've got some Week 13 updates. Noah, you were 6-0 and on the straight picks and 4-2 and on the spread selections. Not a bad week, my friend. Jake, you were also 6-0 and on the straight picks, 3-3 three and three on the spread selections. Chris, you were 5-1 and one on the straight picks, 3-3 three and three on the spread selections as well. And I was the same as you. I was 5-1 and one on the straights and 3-3 three and three on the spread selections. That's going to put the overalls at the following. Jake, you're 71-18 and 18 on the straight picks. You're 39-41 and 41 on the spread selections. Noah, you're 67-22 and 22 on the straight picks. 39 and 41 on the spread selections. Chris, 69 and 20 on the straight picks. 45 and 35 on the spread picks. That's the best out of all of us. And then I was 71 and 18 on the straights and 41 and 39 on the spread. So 
Jake and I tied for the highest uh, straight pick total. Um, but with that being said, you guys, let's go ahead and hop into our final pick here as it's the Pac-12 championship, Oregon and Washington. This one's going to be a fun one to discuss. The Ducks coming off a huge win in the Civil War uh, against Oregon State. They're going to be nine and a half point favorites in this six o'clock kickoff. It's going to air on ABC. Let's go ahead and start with Chris. What are your thoughts on this one? Well, first, my thoughts are, if you bet on everything that I said this week, this year, you made a profit. So I made you made money by being part of Sun Devil Source if you just listened to me. Okay, so that's number one. But now beyond that, I do think Oregon is better than Washington, despite having lost to Washington earlier in the year on the road. But the line seems kind of a little bit on the high side. It's, it's yeah, I was guessing it was going to be like a five or a six type of a line. Nine and a half, that's a lot. These games have historically kind of tended to be kind of blowouts, though. Ugh. I don't know. I think it's going to be close to the line. I'm going to go with Oregon wins by 10, half point cover, Ducks. Ducks. Uh, and also, if that happens, Bo Nix very likely to win the Heisman Trophy. Absolutely. Let's go over to Noah. Yeah, I think um, I'm very high on Oregon. One of the, you know, pro the most complete team in the Pac-12, certainly. And um, I think they are the, the conference's best representative um, to to go to the college football playoff and compete with, uh, with the other powerhouses. So I think Oregon's going to win, definitely. I... I don't think they're going to cover that line, though. Nine and a half seems a little high. I think Oregon maybe wins by a touchdown. Um, and so I think Oregon wins, uh, slightly misses the cover. Um, but even if they lose a close game, I still feel like Bo Nix wins the Heisman. Just the way that uh, Michael Penix has been playing in recent weeks, it hasn't been that impressive. Wait a second. So if you they lose. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I'm just, I'm just curious because – Penix is a, in the top five, probably. Yep. The, and so if if Bo Nix loses twice to the team that has the other other possible finalists, right? And then Washington also goes to the playoff as a result of beating Oregon. You you, you really think that 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 Nix could still would still be the likely winner because the, the, it hasn't really been that close in recent years. And I, I do think that at a minimum, that would make it very close between a few candidates, including Jaden Daniels, probably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a tough situation. I just feel like if it was another close loss, because they lost on a missed field goal the first game. They lost on a missed field goal. He put them in field, field goal uh, range. Kicker misses it. Game over. Um, and Bo Nix has just been so impressive on the whole. He's been He's been extremely consistent. I feel like he would he would be in still in good position in a three three point another three point six point loss to Washington to win. Jaden Daniels is a good point. He's been rolling in the SEC, but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, just good points by both of you there. There's certainly an argument for for either side of that discussion. Let's go ahead and go over to Jake. Uh, let's get your thoughts on this Pac-12 championship, man. I think this is, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't, I feel like this is kind of one of the better power five championships of the weekend. 
Um, you got two guys going for the Heisman going head to head against each other. The winner probably has a really good shot at winning the Heisman and their team probably makes the college football players or puts themselves in the better spot to get the selection. So I think it's probably one of the better ones of the weekend. Um, I've been really impressed with Oregon throughout the entire season, even after their loss um, to Washington, they were able to kind of bounce back and become, I think even more dominant than what they were before. So I'm going to take an Oregon win here. Um, I think it's going to be close. I'm going to say a Washington does get the cover. All right, I'm going to go with Oregon to win and cover in this one. Man, after being down there field level uh, at Mountain America Stadium and seeing Bo Nix up close, slinging that rock around, it was unbelievable. So uh, I just don't think that Washington's going to be able to keep up with the playmakers the Ducks have um, through the air. I just think they're an absolutely dominant team. Not to say that, you know, Michael Penix, of course, uh, isn't dominant through the air, but uh, I'm just going to go with the Ducks in this one, win and a cover. Uh, and they're going to head to the playoff. And I think Bo Nix also is going to win the Heisman. I'm, I'm on that same train with Noah. Um, if they lose, though, I, I personally think that Michael Penix would have the edge if Oregon lost. So we'll have to see how that all shakes out. Uh, and certainly going to be a ton of fun games this weekend to watch. As Jake mentioned, you know, uh, this is probably the best game, but there's a handful of other games uh across the country that are going to be uh, fun to tune into, including Georgia and Alabama, Oklahoma State and Texas, uh, as well over in the Big 12. Um, so plenty, plenty to keep your eyes on there, folks. Um, but that's going to do it for this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. Great stuff as always, guys. Uh, recapping the Sun Devils 3-9 and nine finish for the second straight season uh, under first-year head coach Kenny Dillingham. Plenty of recruiting analysis and breaking news on the way over here at Sun Devil Source. But until then, for myself, Chris Cartman, Noah Furtado, and Jake Seymour, saying so long. See you next time.